At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolfaw, and we've got a really exciting show for you today. I am excited to have with me Dr. Greg Booth, who is an anesthesiologist in the Navy. He's stationed at the Naval Medical Center in Portsmouth, Virginia, and he's also the program director for the anesthesiology residency there. He's really interested in artificial intelligence in anesthesiology and using it uh, to kind of think about uh, different things in different ways. And this is going to be quite different than the discussion we had with um, Dr. Kennison, where we talked about kind of closed loop anesthesia delivery systems. And you'll see what we're talking about when we get into it with Dr. Booth. But uh, Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Jed. Really appreciate this opportunity. Um, you know, I think the first time I listened to your podcast, you had maybe 30 or so posted. So it's awesome to see what you've done with it and, and the reach that you've had. Uh, so it's a big honor. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for saying that. Yeah, it is hard to believe. I was talking to someone today and realizing that we're six years in, 230 episodes, give or take, and uh, it is hard to believe, but mm-hmm. certainly really grateful for having had the opportunity and still having the opportunity to keep doing it and to meet and talk to people like you. So thanks for being here. Um, let's let's start with you. Um, let's uh, tell the audience a little bit about you, what you do, kind of how you got where you are and, and how you developed this interest in uh, AI and healthcare. Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm a staff anesthesiologist and the program director, Naval Medical Center, Portsmouth. Um, You know, truthfully, when I was a resident, my kind of career goal was to become a program director. And so it's really been kind of a dream come true. Uh, I honestly, I love what I do. It's a blast. I like waking up every day to do it. I get to work with, you know, in the GME world and and really work, you know, closely with all my residents. Um, I also get to do a lot of research on the side. Um, So how I got into all that, it's been, you know, probably 10 or 12 year journey. I, I started in undergrad as a biomedical engineer. And, you know, as an engineer, you, you really stop asking if something is possible. You really focus more on how is it, how is it possible? So the assumption is it's going to happen. The, uh, the question is, what is it exactly going to look like? How long is it going to take? And, you know, when I went to medical school, I, I kind of lost that for a little bit. And I think it's some of the fire hose education that we get. You just have to you gotta get through a lot of content. And I found myself missing something, um, but it wasn't really until residency where I realized that it was really that thing I was missing was my creativity. And it was, you know, being able to almost express kind of myself, almost an art form through kind of biotech or, you know, research essentially. And um, once I became a staff, I started working on a project. It wasn't actually too dissimilar to some of the things that uh, Dr. Kennison was working on. You know, you featured him recently, um, looking at kind of predicting hemodynamic variables from non-invasive biosignals. And I, I realized very quickly that I was missing something. I, I had to get more knowledge, more experience on how to take this data and make something meaningful with it. And that was the point where I really started diving into the AI part of, of biotech. And, you know, I, I just learned as much as I could, kind of studied on my own. And I got to the point where I felt like that knowledge was just still too, too superficial. So I started a graduate program in data science and AI and, you know, been able to apply it to a lot of different world, you know, areas in my world, both GME as well as kind of patient outcomes. And it's been an absolute blast. Oh, that sounds fantastic. And I think it really speaks to also how 
you can develop an interest, you know, in after starting a career in anesthesia or anything and, and then really pursue it. And also think about that further training. I get asked a lot uh, from, from medical students and, and residents, you know, should I do a master's in education if I'm interested in education? And, you know, medical students think, should I do it first or can I do it, you know, concurrently with residency? And I often say, you know, see what happens. If you develop that interest and it, and you and you continue to have that interest after you've started on faculty, you you know you can definitely do another degree at that point. And often that's a better time to do it because you've really you know started to kind of get that interest and build it into your career, and then you know it's something that you want uh, and that you can see how it'll fit in. I think that that really is a nice way to do that kind of a path. Absolutely. I mean, you gotta you gotta be happy waking up every day, and that's the thing I counsel a lot of medical students and. Um, you know, even prospective medical students all the time. If you're not doing something you love, then do something different. Yeah, no, absolutely. So let's start very basic. When we say AI or artificial intelligence in healthcare, what do we mean? We, we said, okay, there is this idea of kind of what Dr. Kennison is doing of, of trying to use machine machines to, to, you know, improve the titration of pressors or the you know, titration of anesthetics. So that's one thing. But, uh, you know, your focus has been different than that. And what do we, what do you mean, or, or what do people in general mean when they say we want to talk about AI in healthcare? Yeah. So, you know, it, it takes a lot of time to kind of understand some of the definitions, some of the terms, and, and people use them very loosely. And that's why I think it's confusing when you're first starting out in this field. Um, I think the first place to start is like, what is big data? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's really a grab bag term that refers to processing storing vast amounts of, of data. Um, you know, when people kind of describe what big data is, usually people talk about the three or the five V's of big data. So, you know, the most basic form is the volume, the velocity, and the variety of data. Um, most of the time when we think about traditional statistics and most of the research studies that we even see in our journals now are based off of what we call structured data. So imagine a spreadsheet where every row is a patient and every column is a risk factor, and you're trying to use that to predict something. Um, you know, it's nice, it's neat. The traditional stats work really well with those nice and linear assumptions, and most of the data is there, et cetera. Um, you know, structured data is really just the tip of the iceberg. So it's estimated that somewhere around 2 trillion megabytes of data is made every day in the world. And <laughs> to get a sense of how much that is, It's basically tens of thousands of copies of the Library of Congress every single day. Uh, Less than, you know, 1%, a fraction of 1% of that is actually structured data. So it leaves us, how do we manage all that? Like where, how do we, you know, assess all that unstructured data, which typically is things like audio, you know, text, language, um, images, video content. Um, You know, traditional stats just can't do it. The models break down very quickly. And that's where AI comes in. So AI is a technique within big data to try to, you know, grapple with this vast amount of, of information. A lot of it is applied to structured data, but really I think where the interesting fun things are is that unstructured piece, processing the language, processing the image in the video, things like that. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, I, I think we never really think about that, but there is so much as you said, data being produced, and it's very different than, you know, okay, I'm doing a study, I'm collecting these three variable, you know, kind of outcome pieces of outcome data on on each patient in my study, I want to know their creatinine, I want to know their, you know, blood pressure, whatever it is, then, but that is, you know, now that you're saying it, it makes sense to me, that's this like tiny little bit of the Mm -hmm. just kind of chaos of data that's created every day by our, our healthcare system. Absolutely. And, you know, artificial intelligence itself is a pretty grab bag term. It's really just the whole field of all of these techniques. 
you know, there are hundreds of different algorithms that can be used. Um, and a common term that comes up when you talk about this is machine learning. So, you know, what is, what is machine learning versus AI? The best way that I can conceptualize it is if AI is your destination, if that's kind of your city, uh, machine learning is really the vehicle you take to get there. And that's the nuts and bolts, mathematics, programming, et cetera, that goes into the specific algorithms that can be trained to achieve your goal within artificial intelligence. Um, okay. And, 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 you know, it's kind of interesting because we, we use words like intelligence and learning kind of human attributes to explain what these computers are doing. In reality, they are just, uh, you know, learning some very narrow, specific task, and they really don't have the intelligence. Like, you know, I look at my three-year-old daughter, and the things that she can do are just light years ahead of what even the fanciest AI algorithm can do. So it's not, it's not replacing humans. It's not, you know, really taking on what, you know, how the complex thought processes and emotions and things that a human has. It's just learning to do a narrow task really, really well. Sometimes that approximates human behavior for that task. Sometimes it even exceeds it. Um, but, but it is important to keep in mind that AI still is very narrow focused and it addresses specific questions only. Yeah. Interesting. So, you know, is it accurate to say you could, for example, give a computer, you know, some ridiculous, like my kids think it's crazy or fun to, you know, put some very, very long math you know, problem, you know, multiplication problem into the, you know, the computer or a calculator, and then it spits out the answer right away. They could never do it that quickly. Right. So it can do things like that, but that, as you said, is this incredibly narrow little thing that it mm-hmm. can do faster than a human, but that is one small thing. You look at your three-year-old daughter and all the range of, like you said, emotion and, and all the things that she's doing and learning and, and shaping and changing. And that's a whole different thing. Exactly. All right. So we talked about big data. You told us how machine learning is how we kind of get to the use of AI. We talk a lot about evidence-based medicine. How does artificial intelligence fit into or jive with evidence-based medicine? Yeah, great question. So, you know, and this is kind of one of my missions is to help educate medical students and resident team physicians on, you know, where this fits in, how to use it responsibly. Um, most evidence-based medicine curricula that we've all gone through was kind of a you know, revolution in the 90s, and, and we all were, were part of that. Um, it, it, you know, focuses on those traditional stats, those traditional techniques like logistic regression and odds ratios and, and things that are, again, designed for those structured data applications. Um, and the nice thing about them is they're very interpretable. It's very easy to know what does an odds ratio mean? Like, it, it, you know, quantifies the association between a, a variable and and an outcome. And we can compare different predictors based off of how their odds ratios uh, kind of line up with one another. Um, You know, with AI, it's very different. So it's much more powerful in that the algorithms are nonlinear and they allow capturing very nuanced relationships between predictors, which makes them more accurate in general. But we lose some of the kind of interpretability, explainability of the models. And and, um, so you know, where that fits into evidence-based medicine is, is really, it's a whole new field, a subfield within evidence-based medicine that focuses less on kind of, you know, confusion matrices and sensitivity and specificity and more on like, what is the social, you know, responsibility we have with these algorithms, developing them and applying them to kind of our everyday lives. Okay. And is there, you know, sometimes you see um, uh, some, paper come out and they're looking at, you know, uh, 500,000, you know, uh, patients or something like that. Right. And right. they've used, um, you know, this is big data. They're using AI to kind of look through this and come up with something. And then they have 
you know, something that's statistically significant because when you look at 500,000 patients, right? Like you're going to have, uh, you're going to be able to see very small differences. Do we sometimes ask or need to ask the question just because you can find a statistical difference? Does that mean it's kind of clinically relevant? Yeah, no, great, great point. Um, you know, one fascinating aspect of, of kind of the research that I've done and, and what I've learned along the way is that AI is really revolutionize, helping revolutionize how we approach research and evidence-based medicine um, in many ways. Um, and one of the ways relevant to this, this current topic is how do you describe, define, quantify the value that your project is adding? Because I could find statistical significance all day long. And, you know, and the question is, though, like, what does that mean? What does that mean in terms of lives saved, um, you know, dollars saved, however you want to quantify it? And so, um, you know, I think with uh, you know, the important thing with these with these studies you're using millions and millions of patients, you first have to start out with the right question. Um, you know, there's a lot of susceptibility to, um, you know, people taking a huge data set and mining it and just mining it over and over to find something relevant. But that's not the right way to do it, right? There's a lot of unethical things that can come out of that. We, what we need to do is get all the stakeholders who are involved in a certain project together in the same room before we even start programming anything, define the question, define the parameters, and then go from there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think that strikes me, not having done this work myself, but strikes me as a good way to do it. So let's just talk for a minute about how this stuff actually works. I, I think a lot of um, people, I certainly sometimes think in my very elementary way of trying to imagine this, that you know, AI machine learning and AI is just kind of like pattern recognition. Is that right? Is it just, te- is it just kind of that a machine is, is quote unquote learning how to see a pattern. And if they see enough, you know, of um, let's say they see enough uh, chest x-rays that have a pneumonia, then they can just recognize the pneumonia in the next chest x-ray that has one, or is there more to it than that? Yeah. So like, what is actually happening with this learning process? What does that mean? Yeah. Um, you know, the 20,000 kind of 20,000 foot view of of artificial intelligence is there's two big types there's the supervised learning and the unsupervised learning and the difference between those two depends on whether you know what you're looking for or you don't so with supervised learning you could think of a clinical risk prediction model where you're predicting risk of major adverse cardiac event for example it's supervised because you know the risk factors you know what you're looking for and you're just developing a model to try to determine the best solution the best way to predict that outcome that you know already uh, at least from a training side. From the unsupervised standpoint, that's where you have this big collection of data. And this is, again, back to the concept of the unstructured data. And you don't necessarily know what you're looking for. You just develop an algorithm that says, find something interesting as far as uh, abstract kind of labels or abstract concepts within this data. An example um, we did at some research in the fall where we looked at 12,000 tweets from ASA's official Twitter account. And we didn't know what the tweet said. We just said, hey, find some common topics, some core themes in these topics. And it was pretty fascinating because we ended up with six core topics and they aligned almost perfectly with the six strategic mission pillars of the ASA. Mm-hmm. So again, we didn't know what it was looking for. We said, hey, find some patterns. And, and it did that. So within supervised and unsupervised um, learning, there's a lot of different algorithms and they take various forms. You've heard of things like neural networks and decision trees and K-means clustering and all these other algorithms. They all uh, are structured differently, but when you boil them down, it's kind of similar how they work. 
they have what are called hyperparameters, which are you know features of the model that determine how they function, kind of like knobs and dials on a machine. And when you're developing an AI algorithm, there's a training phase and a production phase. And so during the training phase, you have a bunch of training examples. You send the examples in the model. The model makes a prediction, and then it compares that prediction to either the known reality, like whether this patient had an MI or not, for example, or for unsupervised version, it compares it to some kind of measure of closeness, how close are these two things in some high dimensional space. It determines the error and then it sends that error back into the algorithm. And that causes the hyperparameters to update themselves so that future predictions are more accurate. It's kind of like a negative feedback loop. So essentially all these algorithms behave very similar. You got the knobs and dials, you got negative feedback. And during the training phase, those knobs and dials are constantly tweaked to get better and better and better performance. That training happens until one of usually one of two endpoints is met. Number one, you've gone through all of the number of training um, kind of runs that the programmer sets up a priori. Or two, you reach some benchmark performance. Again, that's kind of determined before you set out. Once I hit this amount of, you know, this level of accuracy, for example, I'm going to stop training. And so the learning, again, it's we use these human attributes to describe it. But really, it's just mathematical kind of gradients and negative feedback. Yeah, interesting. And so is it accurate to say kind of your learning or your algorithm, uh, no matter how much it develops, is really only as good as what you put in? I mean, I guess, for example, if you, you know, we're looking, I'll just keep along the example I was using before. If you're looking at identifying pneumonia in a chest X-ray and, you know, you, um, feed it a bunch of stuff, but you never put in um, a patient that's had a pneumonectomy. And then they see a patient with only one lung and the thing has no idea what to do with that. And maybe it calls that empty lung a pneumonia or it, you know, I mean, is that accurate that if it's never seen something, it's going to struggle with it or not? Is it more complicated? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's right. And the, really the concept that describes that, the, the, the lingo in AI we talk about is robustness. How robust is your model? So when you have a change in the underlying data, a shift in the parameters or a new uh, example that's never seen, how well is that algorithm going to respond? You know, and there are lots of humorous examples that have been published, like uh, models being 95% certain that a dog is actually a parrot or something like that, because <laughs> this AI algorithm is trained to recognize different bird species, but you never gave it a dog, you know? Right. Um, and, and that really, Jed, touches on probably the most important thing I think as far as deploying responsible AI, which is developing a, a, an appropriate um, training data set that captures everything it needs to capture. Um, there's been a lot of examples of kind of unethical AI because the training data set that was used to develop the algorithm had certain biases built into it. Um, some, you know, Im important examples, um, there was a, a big, legal um, artificial intelligence algorithm that tried to predict which people would have like criminal recidivism essentially. And uh, it was very biased, just racially biased because of the training data that was put into it. And it made predictions that were again, very kind of racially biased. And just like you said, it's only as good as the data that goes into it. Um, there's, there's been other examples of uh, mortgage lending, trying to decide which people will default on their loan or not. And again, if your data set has biases built into it, as we know, there's a lot of socioeconomical, um, you know, things that impact mortgage lending. Again, your model is going to make those bad predictions as well. Right. We've heard a lot also about kind of, you know, facial recognition software that is not 
good at identifying people with darker skin tones because it's not being, I assume that's because it's not being given that um, uh, training, right? It's not being given the data set that includes a lot of that. Is that right? Absolutely. And again, I think that gets back to what I mentioned earlier, the importance of getting all the stakeholders in the same room together before you start this model. Um, you know, when you look at a data science project, typically 80% or so of the work goes into data curation and pre-processing before you even train the model. And really that's where, you know, most of the time we focus on, oh, this is a cool model. This is how it works. These are predictions. But really the bulk of the focus needs to be on the methods and how we're, how we're even starting asking the right questions. Yeah. I mean, you could imagine, right, a, a AI software that was designed to identify, you know, melanoma on skin and it, you know, was fed a bunch of white patients with different examples of melanoma and it might be very bad at identifying or would miss a lot of melanoma in African-American patients or darker skin patients. So, you know, I think that you could see real negative consequences uh, if we started relying on this stuff without, like you said, really focusing on the training and making sure we had yeah, set it up right. And, you know, in, in even a more subtle example, uh, we're publishing a paper, uh, it just got accepted to an orthopedic journal that looks at predicting which patients uh, get discharged to a, a nursing facility versus home after total hip arthroplasty. And the benchmark model that we used to compare our results was published in 2018. Um, that data compared to now there's a lot more patients going home. We're a lot better getting patients home, you know, rather than, than to a SNF or someplace else. And so when we applied the current data set, like, you know, 2019 NISQIP data to this old model, it overpredicted everyone's risk, like substantially. And, and so we were able to show with a technique called decision curve analysis that essentially for all patients who are uh, input to that old model, there's actually harm that it, that the model um, portends to them because it overcalls all their risk. And essentially using the model is worse than a coin toss, is, you know, determining whether they're going to go home or not. And mm. so um, the concept there is, is called calibration. Um, so if, again, your your model learns the patterns of the data that goes into it, and if your underlying data distribution shifts, the model needs to be recalibrated to meet kind of the current demand. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about ways in which this can be used for, for good, you know, to, to be helpful, to help us with the things that we're trying to do. I imagine there are probably some ways you can use this clinically, um, some ways we can use it in education. I know you've done some of that work. So talk a little bit about that. How, what are the applications of this when done well? Stay with us. We'll be right back with Dr. Booth's answer to that question after this short break. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. 
All right, we're back. And Dr. Booth is going to answer the question as to what the applications of AI are if it's done well. Yeah, uh, so I didn't want to I didn't want to be negative about it because obviously I love it. I think it's fascinating. It's, I think it's important to talk about the, the negative attributes for we totally accept it. But um, you know, it's been used for OR optimization. So, you know, this is applicable even to private practice model where you're trying to figure out which patients go on which days and which rooms with which providers to optimize something. So for private practice that, you know, is probably some combination of money and, you know, safety. Um, it, it's been used for obviously like Dr. Kennison with hemodynamic monitoring, where you have kind of closed loop feedback that helps better titrate fluids. Um, you know, clinical risk prediction, that's where I've done a lot of my work predicting, you know, the risk of wound breakdown after surgery. And, you know, like I mentioned, discharge after orthopedic surgery. Um, and then the area that I'm more interested in, I think is honestly a lot more fun, is I've uh, been applying it to graduate medical education lately. And again, I think the reason this is so much fun is because it gets away from that structured data and starts to really process the, how, you know, the richness in, in narrative comments and unstructured data in the form of resonant feedback. Um, so, so what we did was we, we partnered with, uh, there's four, um, anesthesiology training programs in, in the department of defense. So we all got together, we pooled, uh, resident evals from about two years. And so we had about just under 6,000, uh, kind of narrative comments. And we developed a model that is able to read the, the narrative evaluations and tag them with the corresponding ACGME subcompetency. And so, you know, in a, in an outcomes-based kind of medical education system, competency-based medical education where the United States currently lives, or at least is, you know, trying to ultimately arrive, is, uh, you know, a really important concept is, is these competencies. So ACGME has six core competencies, and anesthesia-specific has 23 sub-competencies. And as program directors, we have to evaluate residents based off of these things. And so, you know, it's really difficult for CCCs, program directors to sift through hundreds, maybe thousands of evaluations and really do it justice. So the idea is, hey, if we had a, a model that would automatically organize these, um, maybe not interpret them, but at least organize them for us, it really cut down the burden um, and, and help us focus on more formative, you know, helpful feedback rather than just sifting through the data ourselves. Um, and it was actually pretty accurate for some of the subcompetencies. I mean, they had area under the curve of close to 0.9, which is, you know, in the excellent to outstanding kind of category. Um, and, and so the way that we operationalized that um, was, was we built into a self-assessment tool where um, for about six, seven months worth of data, within about a minute, it read all of my residents' evals, tagged them with the correct um, ACGME competencies and spit out you know, Excel spreadsheets, essentially, that I could email them. They could work with their mentors to develop an action plan to improve a couple of them. And, um, you know, now they have very targeted feedback to guide their action plan. Um, and I think it, it, it also touches this, this kind of overall concept uh, touches on the responsible deployment of AI. Um, and, you know, it's really context specific when we talk about ethics of AI and, and what's, you know, what's kind of appropriate to do and what's not. If we had designed the system to automatically interpret the evaluations uh, to help give, you know, assess residents' competency and uh, preparedness for graduation, you know, if that were biased, that could have detrimental consequences, disastrous consequences. You know, it could it could miss when some resident may, you know, could inappropriately say that they're actually ready to go when they need a little bit more work in patient care number four, for example. Or conversely, it could, you know, contribute to some adverse consequence as far as remediation and something like that when, when it wasn't, when it wasn't appropriate. Um, the way that we 
approach this was, hey, let's take kind of a low stakes environment. Let's do a self-assessment um, exercise so that if the model, even if the model is wrong, the consequences aren't that bad. It's just that maybe they spend a little bit more time organizing their feedback, but it's not, you know, some disastrous consequence that has, has long-term impacts on their career. Yeah, that's great. It makes a ton of sense to do it that way first. And then, you know, obviously you could expand from there. Are, are you thinking of kind of further, um, you know, w- will you use it for summative uh, feedback, do you think, at some point? Is it that good? So I, you know, I'm a fairly risk-averse person in general. Um, and, you know, so some of my, that you already hear some of my personal biases going into algorithm development. Um, but I think that the answer is no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And the reason is I never trust myself to make a perfectly unbiased algorithm. And even if I did trust myself, I would never trust that the data that went into it was perfectly unbiased. Um, again, if the stakes were lower, then then sure, maybe I would do that. But when you're talking about a, a resident's development and their pursuit of clinical excellence, you, there's no margin for error there. It's got to it's got to have human oversight to know that this is accurate and this is the the right feedback to give this individual. Um, and you know that's really I think why AI has lagged behind in, in medicine compared to commercial modeling. So you know if you look at Amazon or Netflix. If they're wrong with their predictions, like the worst that's going to happen is maybe they lose a customer or more likely you just kind of get annoyed because it recommends a movie you don't want to see and maybe use Hulu for a day instead of Netflix. So, you know, consequences aren't that big. For medicine, they're huge, right? If, we, if we're wrong, there's an inappropriately denied surgery or, you know, you, you have a false negative on a melanoma diagnosis, as you mentioned earlier. And, and that's why we got to be so much more careful in medicine and you know, it, it is right that we need to be slow to adopt some of these new technologies. We talk about the innovation curve and when you're going to fully, you know, go head first in a new technology. And it makes sense that we should be a little bit wary, but at the same time, we don't want to miss the boat, right? This is just amazing, amazing power. And we've already seen it, you know, save, save lots of money for organizations and, you know, prolong um, patient longevity, prevent adverse things from happening to patients. Um, and, and we can't we can't totally miss that boat while while we're being uh, kind of overly cautious. Um, there's a really good book that if you might get, get a little bit more into the weeds on some of the ethics behind this, it's called Trustworthy AI. It was just published recently. Um, it was, it's written by a Deloitte executive who has a lot of experience in the business world, so it's written from a business perspective. But she kind of boils down some of the main issues with AI and ethics and really comes down to context. You know, it's all context specific. You know, like I mentioned in the commercial world, the consequences are a lot lower. So you may be a little bit more aggressive with the model as opposed um, as opposed to medicine. Um, But I think it's really important, um, you know, to understand, again, getting all the stakeholders together when you when you're first starting these models to make sure that whatever you're doing is, is, you know, appropriate for the context. Yeah. And then probably ongoing, right? You, you got to check it. You don't want to ever, like you said, things change, models change, people change, patients change, residents change, whatever. You don't want to have a system where you've, you, even if it worked perfectly at one point, you don't want to assume it'll always be perfect, right? So you got to have exactly. ongoing quality checks. Yeah, exactly. And that's one thing she actually talks about in the book is, is that ongoing monitoring and, you know, how much monitoring you do depends on the stakes. So, some models will update themselves and learn like on the fly. They call it online learning. Those probably need daily assessments to make sure that the outputs they're making are sensible and ethical and unbiased, as opposed to a more static model predicting, you know, risk of cardiac events. That doesn't necessarily change overnight. That could take a little bit less oversight, but but absolutely 
you need to have some human element overseeing this model to make sure that's doing what you intended it to do. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Are there guidelines, um, you know, that, that help guide the quality or appropriateness of AI use? Yeah. Um, so they're in development. Um, you know, we're probably familiar with some of the guidelines from our evidence-based medicine courses. Um, for example, the consort guidelines for randomized trials and the strobe guidelines for observational studies. For development and validation of risk prediction models, the historic uh, framework that's been used is called Tripod. Um, you know, it's really good. It's very comprehensive, uh, you know, kind of from the start to the finish of a, of a prediction model. Um, the problem is it's not a one-size-fits-all. Um, it works really well for traditional stats, but when you get into AI where you've got unstructured data and all sorts of different algorithms, it doesn't quite capture all of the nuances. And you can still make a very biased algorithm despite following all of Tripod's guidelines. And because of that, there's been a couple others that have come out since then. Um, and they're actually uh, trying to adopt Tripod's guidelines to include AI. It's called Tripod AI. And I think last year there was a study published on essentially the methods that they're going about developing Tripod AI, but we don't have the guidelines yet. Um, one other one that I've used in some of my research is called MyClaim. It's the minimum information about clinical AI uh, modeling. It's, it's decent. Um, it was published in the journal Medical Internet Research, I think in 2018, maybe. Um, actually, sorry, that one was in Nature in 2020. Apologize. That was in Nature. And, um, but it, it's more of a, from a technical standpoint where it focuses a lot on the explainability of models, the interpretability of models, which is very important, but it glances over a lot of the important things that Tripod has, like um, the whole background about asking the right questions and how, you know, some of the nuts and bolts of how it's reported. Um, but it, it, it's pretty good. And I think it helps, helps at least scratch the surface on some of these nuances with AI algorithms. Um, and there's one other one that was published. That was one in journal medical internet research called guidelines of developing and reporting machine learning models and biomedical research. Um, and I've used both of those as well as tripod in, in my various studies. And, you know, my overall sense after using all of them is that you kind of need to, you know, current day in 2022, we don't have a single framework that works well for everything. You got to kind of take bits and pieces from all of them. Um, and, you know, some of the big things that are different with these newer reporting guidelines is, you know, really zeroing in on how to make this model explainable, interpretable, and break down that black box nature. So, it, unfortunately, it leaves us a little bit unsatisfied. And I think that's been a huge barrier to publications, medicine in general, and anesthesiology in specific. We've had, you know, barely any AI uh, papers published in our field. And, um, you know, I think we're just a little bit behind on the innovation curve uh, it makes sense for, you know, risk averse, we deal with high stakes environment, we want to make sure whatever data we're using is 100% trustable. Um, we just may not ever totally get there. So it's kind of that, that question, when, when exactly are we going to accept a little bit of risk and, and accept some of these models and clinical practice to help improve patient care? Yeah, interesting. All right. And so what do you know, one of the things we'll hopefully see in the future are more robust guidelines that have be that become developed. What, what else do you think? I mean, 10, 20 years from now, if you had to guess, what are we going to see in the AI world in medicine that we don't have yet or isn't fully in, in place yet? There's going to be a huge focus on the unstructured data. Um, you know, all of the stuff that we've read in our journals, the vast majority of it, again, has been that structured data. What can you put in a spreadsheet and, you know, what can you apply traditional stats to, to get some answers? We're going to see, um, you know, a lot more effort go into incorporating, you know, 
some of that structured data like patient demographics, age, ethnicity, things like that, along with all these other unstructured things like their bio signals um, or if a, you know, natural language processing approach, you know, things that are written about patients and free text notes. There's so much richness to, to pull out of that. Um, you may see a difficult airway prediction model that includes malampati score and a picture of their oropharynx. You know, um, I think a lot more that unstructured data is going to be part of our everyday life. There's going to be a big, big focus on developing data sets that are representative of the question you're trying to answer and that mitigate bias. Um, and again, that's going to take all the stakeholders who are involved in the project who could be affected by the project in any way, getting together at the beginning to, to make sure it's done correctly. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more monitoring systems in place to make sure these algorithms um, are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, you know, I've published a few things uh, with some orthopedic colleagues, and the general approach is that you make the model, uh, you publish the online calculator, kind of like a NISQIP calculator or something, an MD calc, and then just kind of lives in perpetuity. And there isn't really checks and balances on, you know, as I mentioned that earlier, we, we did that study that looked at predicting discharge disposition after total hips. If they use that model today, you would you would actually cause clinical harm um, if you made decisions based off of the predictions. But there's nothing in place that monitors that. And so I think as we publish more studies, that is going to be a critical feature to even publishing the model in the first place is how are you going to monitor this? What kind of safeguards are in place to make sure that this is actually benefiting patients and not harming them? Yeah. Yeah, I think that'll be, you know, this, it seems like this is still such a kind of new and growing and exciting field, right? And there's a lot to come. What would you say to people if they're listening to this and they think this sounds great, you know, I want to be on this kind of, this seems like I could get involved and really still do a lot. There's a lot to be done and discovered and and published, you know, what would you recommend? Should they look into a a master's program? Should they do a a specific training? Do, do any kind of particular um, kind of coursework? What would you recommend? Yeah, I think first just kind of, you know, be real with yourself about how involved you want to get. So like I knew I wanted to develop the algorithms and, and understand it a hundred percent. And so that's where I pursued kind of the graduate training, but that's obviously we don't all have the time and bandwidth to do that. So, um, you know, if you just want to understand it, I think there's, there's a ton of open access um, education out there. Um, Stanford's got a lot. If you want a little bit more in depth, MIT has got some really good where you can essentially take AI courses online through MIT. And again, that's a little bit more in the weeds, um, but there's, and there's, there's um, a platform called Medium that they've got a lot of things on there, but they've got a lot of really good AI articles. And some of them are written by people who like work at Netflix and Amazon who actually can, you know, they're domain experts in that field, but also help write the algorithms. And so they can understand and explain, explain how they work. Um, I, I do think that, you know, there's going to be a time in the not too distant future where each anesthesia department has kind of a almost like a chief informatics officer who's somebody who can understand AI and bring AI solutions to the group. And so I think that, you know, we always talk about in anesthesia, what's, you know, in, you know, 10, 20 years ago, the, the new movement was a perioperative home. That's kind of, we reestablished our, you know, benefit and, and whatnot, you know, in, in anesthesia, we're uniquely positioned to help adopt these AI solutions for the whole perioperative environment. So I think that if you want to, you know, aspire to be that person, you absolutely can. And it, it starts with just reading a bunch of articles, understanding the lingo, understanding some of the limitations so that, again, you can bring solutions to your group that save lives, save money, and do it in a responsible manner. Awesome. Well, Greg, this has been so interesting, you know, just a, an area that I know so little about, and I know a lot of people too, but I think it's really good to at least have a basic 
understanding because this is going to play a bigger and bigger role in our lives. I, I know for sure. So thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and, and explaining some of this. Let's turn to the part of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have something to share with the audience, mm-hmm. something you'd recommend they check out for fun? Uh, yeah. So, you know, I, I'm from, from Chicago and uh, certainly certain biases go into this, but the Netflix series last dance talks about, you know, Jordan and Pippin and, and the Bulls in the early 1990s. I think that's so good. It was, it's was it been a couple of years now, um, but if you haven't seen it, um, definitely recommend it. Just, you know, stories of resilience and, and championship. And I think the other cool thing is that, you know, growing up in Chicago, I could see it, they, they just brought the city together, you know, and in, in, in an era right now where we're kind of coming out of this isolationist type of environment with COVID and polarizing politically. Like, it's just really fun to look back and see that kind of collective spirit and, and try to, you know, get, think about what we can do to get back to that, I guess. Um, and I think the other thing, honestly, is I, I realized, you know, relatively recently that to be happy, to kind of live life, get out of bed in the morning, I have to be creating something. I have to be, I have to be making something. And I know we're not all necessarily like that, but I think you know, just, just take a minute, put the technology away and just, you know, get into a headspace where you can create and think and whether that's art or AI or anything in between. Um, and, and for me, it's been almost therapeutic to, to just build something. Um, and that could be anything you want, you know, but I think it's so important to kind of get back to your, I don't, I don't know, I'm not explaining very well, I guess, but uh, just go do something, you know, go out there and build and create and change the world. Yeah, I love that. You know, a, a relatively uh, recent friend and colleague um, who I, I met um, said to me that in her family, everybody has, she's got a family full of, you know, people in healthcare, but they all have a, a creative kind of hobby, right? Whether that's painting or sculpture or ceramics or, um, you know, uh, design. And and she just thinks it's so essential. And, you know, I think that's probably true that, we're so busy in healthcare that it's easy to just not have that stuff, especially if you've got kids and, you know, between trying to take care of the kids and work. But I do think that having something creative, even for, and I'm not, I have no creative talent whatsoever, but <laughs> something for me, that's cooking. I love to bake and cook. And, you know, that's something you can do with kids. So it's something that can kind of be additive in that way. But, you know, for other people, it may be sketching. It may be one of our, our uh, folks I know here recently started doing a, a bunch of like, um, it's not paint by number, but that's what it looks like to me. But, you know, some sort of drawing with, in mm-hmm. that sense, mm-hmm. whatever it is, I think it can be really, really important. So I'm, I'm with you hundred percent there. I'll, I'll also recommend a, um, a Netflix show. This one, uh, less probably, um, uh, upbeat, but really well done. It's called made as an M A I D. Uh, and someone recommended this to my wife and me, we watched it. It's a tough show. To, it's a limited series. I think there's a total of six or seven um, episodes in the whole series. It is, very um, deals with some really challenging um, stuff with uh, and just kind of trigger warning for folks. It, it does, um, you know, have some domestic abuse uh, kind of topics in there, but it is incredibly well acted. The woman who is the main character just does an unbelievable job. And it, it does have some real kind of um, uh, messages of perseverance and, um, uh, you know, uh, kind of um, people coming together to overcome real challenges and, um and it, it does end on, uh, on a somewhat of an upbeat note. So it's, it's not, it's not going to leave you. T- there are some of the episodes that will leave you feeling quite depressed, but in the end, if you get through it, it's really well done and, and has a little bit of a hope at the end. So um, don't, it's not light by any means. Don't go into it, um, you know, wanting a light kind of fun evening watch, but uh, really is worthwhile if you're up for something a little bit heavier. Um, well, Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great. 
Yeah, thanks so much, Jed. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Ryan Okonski is our social media manager. And Dr. April Liu is our production assistant. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.